Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our consideration of Lord's Day 45 this afternoon, I want to focus our attention especially on the prayers of Jesus as we find them in the Gospels. Now, we should be aware immediately, of course, that uh, the uh, material that we have about the prayers of Jesus in the Gospels is just a small portion of the scriptural material on this subject. The Psalms, about two-thirds of the Psalms, are prayers or contain prayers, and these prayers, too, are the prayers of Jesus. And so we may uh, look at any one of the Psalms and the prayers that are found in those Psalms, and we may take those prayers to be prayers that our Lord Jesus Christ used during his earthly ministry. Let's just uh, look at a couple of examples from the Psalms to uh, uh, impress this on our minds this afternoon. In the first place, in Psalm 2, the Lord says to his anointed, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. That anointed one is primarily our Lord Jesus Christ, and we may be sure that the Lord Jesus Christ did as his Father instructed him, as the Lord instructed him here. He asked of the Lord the nations for his inheritance. Or if you go to Psalm 3, which is a prayer of David when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. This is also a prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Jesus had many enemies who said this about him. In Psalm 5, another example The first few verses, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation, give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. Or Psalm 8, which is actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 2 as being a psalm about our Lord Jesus Christ. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So we're narrowing our focus just to that material about the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ that are found in the Gospels. We look at this under the theme, the prayers of Jesus, and we look first at his habits in prayer. We look in the second place at some of the content of his prayers, and we take a final look at the high priestly prayer of Jesus as found in John 17. Let's begin this afternoon with Luke chapter 5, verse 16. Luke chapter 5, verse 16, we have to pick up verse 15 in order to understand the context here. However, The report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. So what we have here is, first of all, um, Jesus doing the work that his father sent him to do, and that work arousing a great deal of interest among the Jews of his own time. Great multitudes came together to hear his words and to be healed by him of their infirmities. You have enormous pressure on our Lord Jesus Christ then from these crowds. These crowds want to be with him. They want to be hearing his words. They want to be bringing their sick to him. We find in other places that they want to be seeing his miracles. And so they are making him very, very busy. 
Not only that, but these crowds, as Jesus himself understood, were by and large unbelieving. They came to him not because they were feeding from his word, but because they admired the fluency and the wisdom with which he spoke and because they wanted to see his miracles or to be healed by him or whatever the case was. And this burden, this unbelief was also a burden to our Lord Jesus Christ that increased the pressure on him. And so what we have then in verse 16 is a, a, a Jesus actually withdrawing from these crowds in order to find rest and relief. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. That in itself, of course, is a striking thing. I think it often happens to us that when we get busy, we set aside the spiritual exercises which would help us in those circumstances. We don't have time for prayer, or we don't have time for the reading of the scriptures. And we promise ourselves that when we are less busy, we will get back to this. This is not the practice of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he was busy, he found time to go away from the crowds and to commune with his Father. That the first thing we notice. In the second place, we notice that very often he was alone then in his withdrawing. When he wanted time to pray, he sometimes even left his 12 apostles behind him and went all by himself out into the wilderness or somewhere else where he could be by himself to pray to his father. This was another way, of course, of removing from him any of the distractions of his daily business which would keep him from focusing his whole attention on his father in heaven. And the third thing that we find here in this verse is that word often. He often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now, if you look at that, that, that word in the text, you'll see that it's in italics and doesn't actually, isn't actually therefore found in the Greek. But our translators have put it there because the verb form itself communicates this idea. The verb form itself does not mean he withdrew once into the wilderness and prayed, but that this was a practice that he had, and especially that this was a practice that he had when these crowds were pressing him. He often, then, was found in prayer with his heavenly Father. A couple of other things we should notice. Though the text here in Luke 5 verse 16 says that he withdrew into the wilderness, there are other passages in the scriptures, in these gospels, which talk about him going to the mountains. And in fact, it seems that uh, praying in the mountains was a favorite way for the Lord to uh, commune with his father. You can read this, for example, in Matthew 14, verse 23. We won't turn there right now. Or you can go to Mark chapter 6, verse 46, and you can see this. But look for now at Luke 6, verse 12. Luke 6, verse 12. <coughs> now it came to pass in those days that he went to the mountains to pray, the mountain to pray, and continued all night in prayer to God. His prayers were not only frequent, but were very sometimes very long as well. And again, in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, Luke 9, verses 28 and 29, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. This is at the transfiguration, of course. He's on the mountain. And it may be that the only reason Jesus sought the mountains was that this was another way of being alone. 
He went to the wilderness, we read in Luke chapter 5. Maybe he also went to the mountains only to be alone, to get away from the crowds. But it's also possible, I think, that these mountains had some significance to Jesus, that they, in a sense, brought him closer to his Father, and that, therefore, he went to the mountain to pray. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from where my help comes. We can't, of course, place too much emphasis on that. When Jesus exhorted us regarding our personal and private prayers, he did not say, go into the mountains. He said, go into your room and shut the door. But he did very often seek the mountains as places of prayer. And finally, we should notice that more than once throughout the Gospels, it's said that he prayed at night, or that he went out very early in the morning. You read this in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, for example, Luke 6, verse 12. He went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God in other places as well. This, too, was probably a way of getting away from the distractions of his daily work. It was then, at night, that he could deny himself sleep for a time and be alone to pray to his God. Let's turn our attention and focus most of our attention on the content of some of the prayers of Jesus that we find in the Gospels. One of the first things we ought to notice about the content of Jesus' prayers is that he addressed God as Father. You find this over and over and over again. He spoke to God and he called him Father. Now, Jesus was, according to his divine person, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light. But I do not think that that's what Jesus was talking about when he spoke to his Father. Instead, we must understand that this is Jesus, the Son of Man, calling upon his Father in heaven. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And as man also, he was Son of God, both Son of God and Son of Man. And when he prayed to his Father, he was expressing to his Father that same kind of submission to his Father which we express in our prayers when we call him Father. He was expressing his same trust in his Father that we express. He was calling upon his Father for the same kinds of things that we seek from our Father in heaven. He was looking then to his Father as being inferior to his Father according to his manhood, as the Athanasian Creed says. The Catechism uh, talks about this, of course, this fatherhood of God in the very next Lord's Day of the Catechism and uh, tells us, I think, even what our Lord Jesus Christ meant when he spoke to his Father in heaven. Why did Christ command us to address God thus, our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence for and trust in God which are to be the ground of our prayer. Namely, that God has become our Father through Christ, because he was Christ's Father, and will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith than our parents refuse us earthly things. This is how our Lord Jesus Christ sought his Father in heaven. But there's one, at least one, very important exception to this, in the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
when he was on the cross in the midst of his torment, he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was still obedient, my God, my God, but he did not at that moment know his father's love and could not address him, therefore, as father. And that's all the more striking, people of God, when we consider that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, still he spoke to God as his Father. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. At the beginning of his crucifixion, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And after his work was over and his suffering was finished, he cried again, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But here at the center of his suffering, at the height of all that bitterness, which God poured out on him in wrath, he could cry out only, My God, my God. So that's first, in the content of Jesus' prayers. Almost always, throughout the Gospels, you find him saying, Father. Now the Catechism teaches us, to go on with our subject here, that there are essentially two kinds of prayer. That's in the first question and answer of the Lord's Day we're looking at. This afternoon, why is prayer necessary for Christians? Because it is the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us. That is, our prayers must be expressions of our thankfulness to God for his good gifts to us and praise to God for his majesty and glory. That's the first kind of prayer. And the second kind of prayer is petitionary prayer, which the Catechism talks about in the rest of the answer. God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who earnestly and without ceasing ask them of him and render thanks unto him for them. We find our Lord Jesus Christ doing these two things in his prayers. Let's look at three of his prayers of thanksgiving. The first of those prayers of thanksgiving is found in Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26. Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. He thanks his father both for hiding from the wise and prudent and for revealing to babes. And if you look at the context, I think you can see what Jesus is talking about. If you go back to the verses immediately preceding, he is condemning Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum for being unbelieving. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And again in 23, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have repented, it would have remained until this day. And it's that, I think, that Jesus refers to when he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. God had not revealed the things of Jesus' uh, words, of Jesus' teaching to Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. And Jesus comes to his Father with words of thanksgiving. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from them. Now, I don't think that means that Jesus 
was thankful that these three cities were under judgment. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But what it means, I think, is this, that Jesus saw in the judgment of those cities the fulfilling of God's eternal counsels and God's purposes as revealed in the Old Testament. And he thanked the Father for doing what he had purposed to do from all eternity. Even so, Father, he says in verse 26, for so it seemed good in your sight. It seemed good in your sight. And I thank you because you are doing what is, was good in your sight. But what about that other part that he talks about here? That you have revealed them to babes. Well, if you go on to the verses following, I think you find what Jesus was talking about there. He says in verse 28 and 29, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He's talking there about the other part of the Lord's work, the work of calling those who are heavy laden and overburdened and promising them rest. And he says, I thank you, Father, that you have revealed these things to babes. But now, turn for a moment with me to Luke chapter 10, verses 12 and following. Luke 10, verses 12 and following. In the beginning of that chapter, we read about Jesus sending out the 70. And he tells them, he gives them various instructions about what they're to preach and how they're to go with the, what they're to carry with them and so on and where they're to stay in the cities. But he warns them in that first part of his uh, instructions to them that there are going to be some who will not receive them. Verse 10, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And then notice his next words, but I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. And then we find the same words that he spoke in Matthew 11. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. So we find those same words of the Lord in this context of sending out the 70 and telling them some are not going to receive your word and pronouncing judgment on those who will not receive their word, using the words of Matthew 11. Now, it's possible that this was a separate occasion. It's also possible, I think, that Luke is simply revealing to us more of the circumstances of the uh, Matthew 11, more of what was going on in that whole setting of Matthew chapter 11. So he, he pronounces those words against Chorazin and Bethsaida in 15 and 16. But, notice... Again, verse 17 and following, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And then, in verse 21, the rest of what's found in Matthew 11. 
In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. So in that context now of sending out the 70, of receiving the 70 back again after they had done their work, of their rejoicing because the spirits were made subject to them, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. So that's the first prayer of thanksgiving that we find of our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. There's another one in John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42. John 11, verses 41 and 42. This chapter records the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And just before he actually did raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus prayed, verses 41 and 42. Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus had asked his father for the authority and the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. We don't read about that, but he references that prayer in this prayer. And he says, I thank you, Father, before he's actually done it. He says, I thank you, Father, that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. He knew then what he was going to do. He knew that his Father had given him the authority and the power to do this great miracle. And he prays about it. He gives thanks to his Father for the answer to his prayer. And he does it publicly. He does it in front of all those people who are gathered there around the tomb of Lazarus. And he does it publicly exactly so that they may hear him praying and know that this work is not his own work, but is the work of him who sent him, his father. Because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So he made of his thanksgiving a public thing, which was a way of teaching the people that he was from his Father in heaven. Now one other set of circumstances in which we find the Lord giving thanks, and that's at the feeding of the 5,000. This great crowd had followed him out into the wilderness and had no food to eat. Jesus took compassion on them and told his disciples to feed them. And the only food that the disciples could come up with was a few loaves of bread and a few small fish. And Jesus took that little bit of food for the 5,000, remember, and he gave thanks to his Father in heaven for that little bit of food. We read of the same thing again in Matthew 26, verses 26 and 27, when he instituted the Lord's Supper. We read, he blessed the bread. Matthew 26, verses 26 and 27, he blessed the bread and he gave thanks for the cup. He gave thanks then for that very special food and drink which his father was providing for his disciple. Those then are some of the examples of the thanksgiving that our Lord expressed in his prayers. But we also find him in many places throughout the Gospels making petition. What I want to do here, people of God, is first of all focus on three key uh, sets of circumstances in which our Lord made petition. 
The first one is found in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. We read there, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now it doesn't say there what the Lord prayed about. But people of God, he was beginning his earthly ministry. He was entering upon that work which the Father had given him to do. He had just been baptized, anointed to that work. And now as he, his baptism is complete, he prays. And undoubtedly, people of God, he prays for the Spirit of the Father to come upon him so that he may carry out the work which the Father had given him. Isaiah prophesied about this in chapter 61 of his prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to, pro to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is the work which he was about to undertake. And he prays for the Spirit of the Lord to come upon him. And the Lord answers him immediately by sending the Spirit in the form of a dove, and by speaking from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Again, in Luke chapter 9, where we have recorded for us the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ, we read that he went up into a mountain with Peter, James, and John to pray, and that while he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. Again, people of God, we may understand that he was making petition to his father. He was about to go to Jerusalem to face his enemies for the last time, to surrender himself into their hands to be crucified. And he needed help and strength from his father for that work. And his father again answered him immediately, First, by giving him a foretaste of that glory that awaited him at the end of his work. Secondly, by sending to him Moses and Elijah, who would talk to him about the promises of God in the Old Testament, about the way of suffering to which God had called him, about all the work of God for which he had been preparing in uh, the Old Testament, and that our Lord Jesus Christ himself was to accomplish. So Moses and Elijah would be there to comfort him and to remind him of all that God had been saying and doing for hundreds and thousands of years before this. And finally, again, the Lord answered him by speaking again from heaven. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And it was because of this, people of God, that Jesus was able, as we read in verse 51, to go to Jerusalem. It came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The transfiguration was the encouragement and the strengthening he needed to finish his work. And then finally, another key point where we find him making petition is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The terror of the cross was upon him, and he wanted that cup to pass. But when it was made known to him that his father's will was that he drink the cup, then he went and drank it. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. 
Now there are some other examples of petitionary prayer in the Gospels that I want to look at very briefly. First of all, in John 12, John 12, verse 28. Actually, we need to begin with verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's he's asking himself, what shall I say? What petition shall I make? Shall I say, save me from this hour? As he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, actually. Shall I say that? Shall I say to my Father, save me? But for this purpose, I came into this hour. So, he says instead, Father, glorify your name. And a voice comes from heaven again, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Another example is found in Luke chapter 22, verse 32. Luke 22, verse 32. He is just prophesied about Peter's betrayal of him. And he says to Peter there in that verse, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. He began by saying, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has sifted, has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. He prayed for Simon, knowing that Simon would betray him. And finally, we find his petitions on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That strong petition, which is only implied in the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Come back, help me again. And finally, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Receive me to yourself. Now if we look at all those prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see, I think, people of God, that he prayed according to what he had taught his disciples to pray. He had taught them to pray, Hallowed be your name. And he prayed, Glorify your name. He had prayed, he had taught them to pray, your kingdom come. And there is no doubt at all, people of God, that throughout his earthly ministry he was praying, your kingdom come. He had prayed, taught them to pray, your will be done, and he himself prayed it in the Garden of Gethsemane. He taught them to pray for their daily bread, and he prayed about daily bread. In the feeding of the 5,000, he taught them to pray for the forgiveness of sins. And he prayed for, undoubtedly, he prayed for Peter's sin of betrayal to be forgiven him. He prayed for, he taught them to pray for sanctification. Lead us not into temptation. And in the high priestly prayer, which we're going to look at in a moment, he said to his father, sanctify them by your truth. And in all this, giving glory to his Father in heaven. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. He prayed in many different difficult circumstances and in many different circumstances. He prayed often. He prayed long. And this is all the more striking people of God because this is the one who was perfect, who did not and could not sin. Because this is the one who was strong against his enemies, to whom the Lord had given power and authority to calm the sea, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to speak the word, 
with such effectiveness that all his enemies were put to shame and his disciples more and more clung to him and to his words. It's this one who is praying to his father over and over again. And it was because he prayed thus that he was strong and authoritative and that he was able to do the work which his father had given him to do. Let's turn then to John chapter 17. John 17 in the high priestly prayer and say just a few things about that prayer of our Lord. That prayer divides into three parts. In the first part of that prayer, verses 1 to 5, John 17, verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. And he prays, his main petition for himself is glorify me. Notice it first in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And he prays it again in verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me. He's praying for his own glorification. He's looking forward then. He's anticipating the end of his work, the end of his suffering on the cross. And he is asking his Father for that glory that has been promised to him. But a couple of other things we should notice about that petition he makes for himself. First of all, he specifies that glory which he seeks. He says in verse 1, glorify your son. I'm sorry, verse 2. I've gotten confused again, I'm sorry. Verse 5, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He refers to his his own eternal glory as the second person of the Trinity, the divine Son, who was with the Father from before the foundation of the world and who had all the glory of the Father upon him. And he says, glorify me now with that glory which I had with you before the world was. Let my human nature be filled with the glory of God. Let the glory of God, the fullness of the Godhead, be in me bodily. But notice, too, that he tells us why he wants this glory. Verse 1, glorify your son that your Son also may glorify you. It's not a selfish seeking of glory for himself. It is so that he may glorify his Father. And it is also so that he may give eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. Verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So that's very briefly what he prays about in the first part of the prayer. In the second part, he prays for the disciples who are with him at that time. Verses 6 to 19. And again, it's it's very interesting and very striking to see what he prays. He first, in verses 6 to 8, describes what he himself had done for those whom the Father had given him, for his elect. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed That you sent me. So he's talking about what he has done for them during his earthly ministry. And then in verse 9, he begins to make his petitions for them. But notice again how he begins. It's very striking. He says, 
I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So he's very specific about who this prayer is for. It's for those whom the Father has given him. And it's then in verses 10 and uh, verses 11 and following that we find him actually making his petition. And the heart of the petition which he makes for them is keep them. Keep them. You find it first in verse 11. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. And again in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So he's praying for their preservation. And he's praying for their preservation because they are still in the world. He prays here, people of God, in this petition, as if he were already in heaven. He says in the course of this section, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He knows that they're going to be suffering persecution and opposition and all kinds of things at the hands of those evil men to whom he sends them. And he prays, therefore, that the Father will keep them while they remain in the world. But he's no longer in the world. And he says in the course of this, uh, this part, I have kept them. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. He says, I have kept them while I have been with them in the world, but now I'm no longer in the world. And I commit this work of keeping them to you. Keep them, Father, because I am no longer in the world. And I'm sure he has in mind here, people of God, the coming of the Holy Spirit, that other comforter who will abide with them forever. Keep them. But he makes other petitions for them as well. Give them joy. Verse 13, but now I come to you And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And he prays for their sanctification as well. Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And in the third part of the prayer, then he prays for all those believers who are still to come. All those who will hear the word of his apostles and believe on him through that word. Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And he prays with regard to them that they may be one with him and with the Father. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. He prays for them to have the glory which the Father had given him, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. He prays that they may be made perfect in one. This is really the theme of this last part, that they may be one. He asks in verse 24 that they may be with him. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. He prays that they may know the Father's love and that he may be in them. Verse 26. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. 
That's very briefly, people of God, what our Lord prayed about in that high priestly prayer. You could spend uh, many, many hours talking about the depths and riches of that prayer. But this prayer, people of God, is prayed, remember, on the eve of his death. And he makes these prayers to his Father on the basis of that atoning work which he is about to accomplish. It is only because he is, has kept those whom the Father is, has given him and that he is about to lay down his life for them, that he can now say to his Father in heaven, keep them, sanctify them, give them joy, let them have the glory that you are giving, giving to me. He is really acting here as our high priest, people of God, interceding for us already on the basis of the atoning work which he is about to accomplish. So we see in our Lord Jesus Christ and in his prayers, him setting an example for us by his habits in prayer, by the content of prayer. He teaches us how we should pray. He, get, he shows us with what confidence we may pray. Look at that high priestly prayer again. And look how it breathes confidence in his Father. That's how he wants us to pray. With that same confidence. He shows us how the Father answers prayer. I know, he said in his prayer at Lazarus' tomb, that you always hear me. And he wants us to be convinced that our Father will always hear us. He said, in fact, to his disciples in John 14, verses 13 and 14, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So he sets us an example in prayer. But realize also, people of God, that by passing through the valley of the shadow of death, through to glory, he has opened a way for us also to follow him into the Holy of Holies, where we may call upon our Father in heaven. May God bless the proclamation of his word.